There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. Today's guest for the first half of our podcast is United States Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Jerome Adams. Surgeon General, welcome to Next Steps Forward, for I'm sure it's going to be an enlightening and informative program. I'm really glad to be here with you, Chris, and uh, I'm hoping it will be an enlightening conversation that we have, but we always have good conversations when you and I get together. No, I appreciate that. Thanks for the kind words, sir. Jerome M. Adams is the 20th Surgeon General of the United States. As a Surgeon General, Dr. Adams holds the rank of Vice Admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. He oversees more than 6,000 uniformed health officers who serve in nearly 800 locations around the world as they promote, protect, and advance the health and safety of our nation. His mission as the nation's doctor is to advance the health of the American people. And his motto is, better health through better partnerships. We're going to talk about those partnerships, but first, I'd love you to share your personal story. What sparked your interest in, and is it fair to say, your your love for medicine? Uh, Well, that's a great question. And believe it or not, I actually um, never was interested in becoming a doctor growing up, even though I had a 3.9 GPA. I had the ability, the aptitude. But the first time I actually met a black physician was when I was in college. Uh, And so I didn't even know there was a such thing as as a black doctor. And uh, I say that because it's important uh, to have representation, to have diversity, uh, to to be able to see it so you believe that you can be it. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so proud to be Surgeon General of the United States. But long story short, I actually started off majoring in engineering and uh, did a lot of research. I was uh, majoring in biochemical engineering, and I was doing research in a lab with a gentleman who was an MD-PhD. And that exposed me to both the medical side and the research side. And I got a little bit of the bug there. I actually met Dr. Ben Carson when I was in college. Uh, He was the first black doctor I ever met. And I said, wow, that looks like a pretty cool life you've got there being able to help people in a a hospital setting. And uh, and then that coupled with a, a lot of experiences I've had from the patient side. I was asthmatic growing up. My, uh, family has dealt with an array of health issues. All four of my grandparents died early on due to cardiovascular disease related events. Uh, And I've been very open about my brother's uh, struggles with substance use disorder. And so all those combined to to really put on my heart that that I should try to become a physician. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, not only just a physician, but the nation's doctor. I love that. So it's amazing for someone like me, excuse me, who, you know, you, you just said you'd never seen a black physician until you met Dr. Carson. You know, what sort of, how did that shape your perspective, you know, in getting into the medical profession and whether you might have a future in it or not? Well, again, if you don't see it, then you don't believe that you can be it. And that's even if you had the ability. And so uh, that was really powerful to me. I, I think right now about my own daughter, who's 10. And uh, Mae Jemison is one of her heroes. Uh, my daughter, both because she is a female and because she's African-American, 
uh, might have grown up thinking she could never be an astronaut because uh, there are very few female and very few African-American astronauts. But having those role models matters. And I guess the point I would make to your listeners and viewers now is that that's why it's so important we have good people willing to be public servants. We need people out there, regardless of who is presiding at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, who are committed to helping the public and who are supported by the public. And uh, one of the things that I'm a little bit worried about is really uh, the degree of, of vitriol towards public servants all across the nation right now. And I would just encourage people to remember that 99.9% of your government is not political, is not elected, are just good people who in many cases are taking pay cuts to, uh, relative to what they could be making in the private world to, to serve because it's on their heart to serve. Now, thank you for making that point. Public service is obviously something very near and dear to both your and my hearts. And so I appreciate you pointing that out to our listeners and viewers. You know, our guests often talk about a mentor or maybe other mentors who are invaluable in getting started on their career paths. You talked about Dr. Carson, but is there anybody else that may have made that critical difference for you, both in the medical profession and outside of it? And what did they do that was so meaningful? Well, there's mentorship and there's sponsorship. And I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because that's a, an entirely different lecture. But mentors are people who really uh, um, give you advice on a day-to-day -day basis. And we need to be mentors and we need to seek out people who can mentor us. And that's no matter the stage of your career. Uh, but you also need sponsors. And sponsorship is someone who will speak up on your behalf, who will put your name in the hat when uh, there's an opportunity. And a person who I consider both a mentor and a sponsor is Vice President Pence. And that may seem like an odd thing for me to say, but this is someone who looked at my credentials uh, and, and I was, and I say this with humility, uh, extremely well qualified for all the positions he put me up for, but uh, I'm not someone who traditionally would have been put up for those positions, particularly by someone uh, in his world. Uh, and I, we, he and I joke about this all the time. Uh, we come from two different worlds. And he took a chance on me. He, uh, he picked me to be his health commissioner. And we accomplished quite a bit during my time there. We got syringe service programs legalized in the state, uh, set a standard that, uh, that has been followed all across the uh, Midwest and changed national laws. And uh, he also then threw my name in the hat to be Surgeon General of the United States. And uh, Again, I want people to understand, I have a master's degree in public health. I had a 3.8, 3.9 GPA all throughout school. Uh, I've worked in leadership positions within medical associations. Uh, I was qualified for these roles, but without someone like the vice president there uh, encouraging me and also giving me the opportunity, I wouldn't have necessarily been in a position to be in these roles. And so uh, remember... You can be a mentor or a sponsor to people, even if you never, ever really think of yourself as being in that position. Uh, I even tell medical students right now, uh, and they say, well, I'll do that one day. I say, no, there's a little kid out there right now who can't even dream of being where you are currently. And just being nice to them, kind to them, telling your story can sometimes be the difference between whether or not they choose to pursue that pathway or whether or not they feel like they're shut off from it. You've had a distinguished medical career and you just talked about how Vice President Pence 
helped get you to the point where you are today. Are there any other things that you did, be, you know, starting your career in terms of, you know, how you became the nation's doctor to becoming the nation's doctor? Well, uh, one of my favorite quotes, got a couple of them, but um, one of my favorites is Mark, Mark Twain. Mark Twain uh, says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And uh, I think we all have to be honest that we all carry our own biases into every encounter that we have. But the more we're exposed to other people uh, and other cultures, the more we see things from their perspective. And so I was afforded a lot of opportunities, but also uh, sought out opportunities to travel and to live and to work in different places. So I've lived in Africa. I've lived in Holland. I've lived in Texas. I've lived in Boston. And let me tell you, Boston and Texas are about as different as Africa and Holland are, believe it or not, when it comes to to culture and beliefs and and, and a lot of the policies that we're debating right now in Washington, D.C. But those allowed me to to, to be able to take a deep breath when there is a conflict on policy and to say, look, just because I'm in Boston and you're in Texas, that doesn't mean you're a bad person because you disagree with me. Because guess what? I've lived in Texas and I understand why people in Texas may feel very differently on an issue um, such as uh, your your right to own a gun than a person in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I understand why you might feel incredibly different about an issue such as climate change, having been to West Virginia as many times as I've been and knowing that uh, there are communities there where half or more of the community is dependent on the coal industry to put food on the table. And I say that because we've gotten to a point now where we fall into these tribes and we just assume someone else is a bad person, that they're demonic if they don't believe what I believe. But uh, until you've had the opportunity to walk in someone else's shoes to see their experiences, I think it's hard to, to really empathize in the true sense of the word. And so I would encourage young people in particular, but anyone who can, to travel as much as you can try to look at the world through someone else's eyes and it will really soften your heart. Surgeon generals take on some very big health issues, but honestly, obviously I can't think of a surgeon general in our lifetime who's had to address a global pandemic with the impact that COVID-19 has had in our country. What can we expect in the weeks and months ahead? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I will try to give you a very succinct answer to a very complicated question that we could talk about for the rest of the day. Number one, you're right. This is a once in a century pandemic. And we have to recognize how big this is. We have to recognize we've been trying to fly the plane as we're building it. And that's caused us to have to correct course on a number of occasions. And that doesn't mean anyone is incompetent. That doesn't mean anyone is nefarious. It just means that this is a tricky virus. Tony Fauci, who's been doing this for 40, 50 years, tells me he has never experienced a virus quite like this. And he's dealt with HIV, H1N1, Ebola, um, and beyond. And so, number one, recognize how unique this situation is. But number two, recognize how far we've come since February, March. Uh, We have four candidates for uh, a vaccine in phase three trials in less than 10 months after sequencing the virus. The previous record was five years. That is nothing short of miraculous, and it's a testament to the hard work people are doing. Uh, we've got more PPE. Uh, we have um, we just passed 140 million tests. We've got remdesivir and steroids, and the mortality rate has gone from around 30 percent 
uh, if you were diagnosed with this virus in February, March, to down near 5% now. So we've made a lot of progress. We also understand uh, more about how to prevent the disease. My three W's, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. So that is true, but it is also true that we're seeing increasing cases all across the nation, and we need to remember to stay vigilant. So there are a lot of false choices people give you out there that it's either all bad or it's all good. There's a lot of good news out there, but uh, that doesn't mean that we can afford to to uh, take our foot off the, gra- uh, off the off the gas, to take our eyes off the road. Uh, the final point I'd make is that there's a lot of reason for hope. Uh, reason for hope, again, because we've seen over and over again in blue states like New York and red states like Arizona, that when we follow mitigation efforts, wearing a mask, washing your hands and watching your distance, you can go from worst in the country or in New York's case, worst in the world to under a 1% positivity rate. But also have hope with the knowledge that we will have a vaccine by the end of this year, beginning of next year. And combined with mitigation, if we all do our part, we can stay open and we can bridge to a vaccine so that we can finally get back to some sense of normal. And I say some sense of normal because there's a lot of good things that have uh, happened because we've been pushed off the fence. More telehealth availability, a greater recognition of the importance of addressing health disparities have occurred. Uh, And uh, I hope we don't go back to the way we were, but I hope we go back to an ability to be able to spend time with our families, go to graduations, uh, have weddings, um, have Christmas and Thanksgiving in person. And that's all going to depend on everyone doing their part now. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. And the other important thing that I wouldn't be doing my job as Surgeon General if I didn't harp on was this year, it's more important than ever that you get your flu shot. You've been talking to my wife. She's making sure that I get mine this week. So uh, I'll be sure to do and that. If, so. And if, if you don't get it this week, call me up because I've been going around the building over here and giving people their flu shot. So I, you're right across the way from me. I can come over and give you yours. <laughs> I'm sure she'll call you if I don't. I promise you that, sir. <laughs> so how is your commitment to forging new partnerships and strengthening existing relationships with members from business, faith, education, public safety, and na- national security communities? How's that helped as the administration and the public health service address the pandemic? Well, that commitment comes from the fact that the U.S. spends more money on health care than any other country by far. Yet we have some pretty terrible results in a variety of metrics. And that's just a fact. And so as Surgeon General, I had to ask myself, why is that? And uh, it's for um, two main reasons. Number one, we spend a disproportionate amount of our time, our talent and our treasure um, patching people up after they've already been hurt picking people up after they've already fallen, catching people in safety nets instead of preventing them from falling off a cliff in the first place. So we need to focus on getting upstream and building healthy communities that build wellness instead of treat sickness. Uh, And in order to do that, uh, we have to embrace my motto of better health through better partnerships. We have to look at the law enforcement environment, the business environment. We have to work with faith communities. And uh, I've really tried to extend our thinking about health outside of the hospital, outside of the clinic, um, away from doctors and nurses, and really getting everyone to understand that health happens in, in communities. It happens in homes with, uh, w- uh, that, are, uh, that provide safe and affordable housing. It happens in neighborhoods with complete streets. It happens in communities that have access to fresh fruits and vegetables at an affordable cost. And if we provide those things, then we will actually get a lot more return on the investments that we're making as taxpayers into our health systems, because uh, 
Ben Franklin was right. An ounce of prevention is uh, worth a pound of cure. Mr. Surgeon General, I know our time is growing short, and I'd like you to touch on a few priorities of yours before our time is up. Before COVID-19 became daily front page news, our most pressing public health crisis was the opioid epidemic. Have things gotten better, or are fewer people struggling with opioid addiction these days, or is it really just because it's getting less attention? Uh, Good news and bad news on that front. Uh, We had actually been turning the corner on the opioid epidemic and seeing overdose rates go down across the nation going into this pandemic. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of what COVID did was cut off resources for people who were suffering from substance use disorder. My own brother was released from prison due to crimes he committed to support his substance use disorder right at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, Halfway houses, treatment programs that had previously uh, been stood up for people like him were closed off because of the pandemic. And so uh, one of the things we've seen is overdose rates have increased this year in many places around the country, which is why we need to stay vigilant. And I would encourage people to go to surgeongeneral.gov, check out the naloxone advisory I put out, calling on everyone to be willing to carry naloxone, but to at least know what it is, because anyone can get it and uh, anyone can save a life. Once upon a time, people didn't know how to do CPR, and there were individuals dying, or dying needlessly from heart attacks. And now, if you go into a room of ten people, uh, you can't, you you can't you can't not have someone who knows CPR. We need to take that same approach with naloxone. And on a broader level, we need to understand that uh, mental health has been deeply affected by this pandemic. Reported increases of over eighty percent in anxiety, depression. And uh, we know when those things happen, people self-medicate with alcohol, with, with, uh, with tobacco, with, uh, with drugs like marijuana and opioids. And so it, it's all the more important that we don't forget about the interconnectivity between mental health and physical health and not let our attention on this virus take attention away from the fact that we can't be healthy uh, in any sense if we aren't healthy mentally um, and uh, from an emotional wellness point of view. Now you touched there on mental health and you and I have done some work together on the prevention task force for the veterans to try and end veteran suicide. You know, I personally think that when, once we come out the other side of COVID-19, whenever that is and whatever that new norm looks like, I think there's going to be not just a U.S., but a global mental health crisis. What can you share with our listeners and viewers now in terms of things they can do to help themselves, to help their friends, their loved ones? You know, you know the campaign is reach, reach out. You know, everyone's got it bottled up in here, but what can you do in your role to get the message out there to help have other people help each other? Well, you mentioned the REACH campaign, and we, we need to direct people towards that because, number one, it's recognizing warning signs in uh, people around us. Uh, are they becoming withdrawn? Are they acting irritable? Are they uh, showing other signs uh, that, that, that are indicative of being at risk for substance misuse or being at risk for taking their life by suicide? But we also need to recognize those symptoms within ourselves. Uh, I often say that the biggest killer out there isn't cigarettes. It isn't sugar-sweetened beverages. It isn't all these other risk factors we talk about. It's actually stigma. And stigma keeps people in the shadows. It keeps people from asking for help. It keeps people from even admitting they have a problem. And my own brother, again, still struggles with even acknowledging that he has a mental health problem uh, that that is medical and that actually can be treated. And so uh, I would just uh, hope that this pandemic has shown more people out there that all of us can suffer from anxiety and depression 
and mental health issues, and that that's okay. It's okay not to be okay. Uh, we don't fault someone for going out and slipping and breaking their ankle. We don't say you're weak because you tripped over that curve and broke your ankle, but we are quick to say someone is weak if they uh, exhibit a mental health issue such as, again, anxiety or depression, or heaven forbid, they, t- they try to take their life by suicide. And so one of the things that I want to um, give you a shout out for is that particularly in the veteran community and the military community, you've really helped normalize uh, mental wellness. Uh, and you've really helped people understand that when someone takes their life by suicide, it's not because they're weak. In many cases, it's because of what happened to them 10, 20, 30 years um, prior to that moment. It's because of environmental factors that uh, put them at risk for that attempt and that don't build resilience. And there are evidence-based ways that we can intervene and save lives. And uh, that's why I'm putting out a suicide call to action in December that along with the work of the Prevents Task Force will really help us normalize mental mental health and wellness, um, destigmatize people asking for help, and destigmatize uh, people taking their life or trying to take their lives by suicide, but also give us the tools we need to intervene and intervene earlier and upstream so that we can uh, prevent some of these unfortunate things from happening instead of just wondering why after the fact. No, thank you for those kind of words. I appreciate that. You know, finally, time for just one last question, sir. You've underscored the links between community health and the twin priorities of economic prosperity and national security. What are those links and how do we strengthen them so more Americans are healthy, more prosperous and secure? Great note to go out on as we are in election season. And again, one of the challenges of being Surgeon General is my job is to be the nation's doctor to tell people how to be healthy. But in no election in my lifetime, uh, presidential election, has the public voted where health has been their number one issue. The number one issue people vote on, Democrat or Republican, Black or White, rural or urban, Uh, in every presidential election over the last 40 to 50 years has been jobs in the economy. The number two issue that people vote on is safety and security. So we need to help people understand that when you have a healthy community with complete streets, with clean air, with affordable housing, that you actually have higher wages. You have more jobs. People are more likely to show up uh, to work on time. People are more likely to be productive in the workplace. But as the opioid epidemic has shown us, when you have an unhealthy community, uh, places have trouble staffing their factories and their workplaces uh, because people are distracted, because people can't pass the drug test. And uh, really, uh, I want businesses to understand that you do have a role in, in understanding what those risk factors are and in helping to build those resiliency factors. And the same thing goes for our national security. Seven out of 10 Chris, of our 18 to 24-year-olds in this country are currently ineligible for military service because they can't pass the physical, uh, can't meet the educational requirements, or have a criminal background record. Seven out of 10. That means you want to be safe and secure as a nation? Well, you can't do it if you don't look at why seven out of 10 of our young people out there are ineligible. And they're ineligible because they don't grow up in healthy communities that are supportive, that uh, build resilience in them, that give them the opportunities and the hope that they need to become successful adults. And so it's, I've been working with, again, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, but also the Surgeons General of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force to uh, help them understand the importance and to figure out ways that we can work together. Because quite frankly, I'd rather have General Milley um, or uh, 
Mark Zuckerberg going to Congress and saying we need complete streets and clean air laws and more naloxone than they have the Surgeon General of the United States, because, again, that's what people vote on. And so uh, I'm trying to speak in a way that will resonate with our public, but will also uh, help meet them where they are and, uh, and help them understand healthy communities benefit all of us and that together we really are stronger. Dr. Adams, Vice Admiral Adams, Mr. Surgeon General, it's a lot of titles you have there, a lot of hats. <laughs> that is the one that I'm most commonly <laughs> called, and that's, that, that's good enough for me. No, you know, thank you so very much for being with us today, sir. I truly appreciate it. Again, I know how busy you are, and you've got a lot on your plate. Uh, and thank you for all of your efforts to keep America safe. It's going a long way, and your message is definitely resonating. And so, again, God bless and thanks for all you do. We'll be back right after this brief break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You have the power to be stronger, live fearlessly, and enjoy the benefits of a great life. Listen for Fearlessly Authentic with host Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started. With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and a two-time world bikini champion, she's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and edutained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with our host, Cynthia Bryan. Then on Sundays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, Teens Talk and the World Listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Play with with us at be the star you are radio.com and the voice america empowerment channel work it's broken and needs a serious overhaul want to help together let's end the soul-sucking experience it is where people drag themselves to collect a paycheck and usher in a world where work is synonymous with meaning and purpose where leaders inspire people to rise to their greatness in service of their tasks and business is elevated to unleash spectacular cause in the world here on working on purpose you're not just part of the movement you're powering the solution listen each week on voice america empowerment Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 
1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back. This is Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. Our guest for the remainder of today's podcast is evangelist Aveda King. She's a pastoral associate with Priests for Life and serves as the executive director of its outreach, Civil Rights for the Unborn. Aveda is the daughter of the late civil rights activist, Reverend A.D. King, and his wife, Naomi Barber King. She's also the granddaughter of Martin Luther King Sr., known as Daddy King, and her uncle was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Obviously, Alveda grew up in the midst of the civil rights movement led by her late uncle. She saw firsthand how that movement brought out extraordinary courage and the very best in people, and saw and endured the very ugliest moments of that era. Her family home in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed, as was her father's church office in Louisville, Kentucky. Alveda herself was jailed during the open housing movement. Evangelist King is a former college professor and served in the Georgia State House of Representatives. She's a recipient of the Life Prize Award, the Cardinal John O'Connor Pro-Life Hall of Fame Award, and the Civil Rights Award from the Congress of Racial Equality. She's a best-selling author, the founder of Elevated King Ministries, and holds an honorary Doctorate of Laws degree from St. Anselm College. Elvita, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Well, thank you so much, and iHeartRadio and all the listeners. Hello, everyone. Alveda, let's start with what journalists call the edge of the news questions. It's often helpful to look back to understand where we're going or potentially trying to go. I think that's especially true right now as the nation attempts to navigate the aftermath of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. You experienced the violence and upheaval that racked America in the 1960s in a way few can imagine. I mentioned bombings and your uncle was murdered as he worked to create a more just society. Take us back to that time and what you experienced and share with us how it relates to what's going on in America today. I remember in 1963 on May the 11th, it was the night before Mother's Day, and our home was bombed in Birmingham, Alabama. I remember many things about that time. My mother went through the debris and the ashes and found a broken but still intact face and image of Jesus Christ. She still has that today in a frame. I remember my father, Reverend Alfred Daniel Williams King, A.D. King, the brother of M.L. or Martin Luther King Jr., standing on a car and saying to those outside who, some wanting to riot, some afraid, and there was panic and mayhem, he said, stop, go home, pray. My family and I are okay. If you have to hit someone, hit me, but I'd rather you go home and pray. I saw the outside agitators, which we see today in 2020 uh, in the form of the Black Lives Matter organization, not the movement, the organization, and Antifa with the Molotov cocktails and the bricks that have been pre-prepared for people to throw and hurl. And my mother said something to me way back then. My daddy says, love, forgive, move forward, serve God. My mother said, honey, you have to learn to heal on your feet. So today in 2020, with George Floyd, Jacob Blake, so many things that have happened, 60 million aborted babies legally in America since 1973 to today, over 60 million now. There's so much that is going on that our only answer, and this is me, the Christian evangelist speaking, 
is to turn to God, ask God to forgive us and learn to live together. Learn to, we must learn to live together as brothers and I'll add as sisters or perish together as fools. I don't think we'll perish together as fools, as fools because I think people are waking up knowing that we are really going to have to trust God. You talk about living together as brothers and sisters. How do we resolve the social and racial inequities in America today? We have to not be racist. And that's not just based on skin color. A person is a racist, honest to goodness, if he or she thinks that she's part of a different race in the human race. There's one race. We all bleed the same. Science religion, philosophy, one human race. So if we're going to accept the lie, uh, the socially engineered concept of different races, we're always going to have race disputes. So we are one human race. And I have a book, We're Not Colorblind. I also have a book now, Why Trump? I wrote Why Colorblind with my friend Ginger Howard. She's Caucasian and I'm African-American. Our skin colors are slightly different, not that much. Our hair colors are a little different too. But we know that ethnicity is denoted by skin color and other characteristics. But the race, the human race, no, no, no. We are one human race. So to answer your question, the reason we are having all of these race disputes, we still think we're separate races. This year has been obviously a year of enormous unrest. Uh, it's always important to remain hopeful, positive, optimistic. You know, 2020 just seems to be the year that keeps on giving and, and just you know, won't end. <laughs> what do you believe are the best things that will or could yet come from the events of 2020 to make America a better, more just country for all people? I lost a very close friend to COVID-19. I've had other friends who have been battling the pandemic, so to speak. And so that's not something that I take lightly, neither the race riots and the race wars and all of the things that are going on in our nation. The elections are very contentious. However, the way that I remain focused, I take time every day with God, actually. And yesterday I had said something unpleasant to somebody uh, and I said, you know, I call something ugly just because I didn't agree. I said, that's ugly. Well, it wasn't really even ugly. The person who did it spent a lot of time putting it together. And so here I am with those harsh words out of my mouth just because I didn't agree or like it that much. And, and I had to, I've taught my grandchildren. After someone cooks a lovely meal and you sit down and you say, oh, well, that's nasty. I don't want that. I said, what you could really say is thank you for preparing this. Uh, I don't prefer that today, but thank you so much. You know, so we just really, those are things like courtesy, uh, compassion, manners, we used to call it a long time ago. And I forget mine sometimes, and I have to go back on social media and apologize. You know, obviously your uncle was recognized as a leading voice in the civil rights movement, but your father was a voice for nonviolence in his own way. You touched on this earlier. You know, I was very moved by something I read about him. In August of 1963, just two months after your family home was bombed, racist bomb the home of a prominent black lawyer in downtown Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Talked about the, how the story went and your, your father's out there saying, you know, beat me, don't beat somebody else. And really saying, stand up for your rights, but with nonviolence. That is a powerful, powerful statement, especially given that time and that movement. 
He was like that his whole life. Now, he was feisty. I remember <laughs> even the night that the home was bombed, he told her because a police officer had pulled back a billy club because I wouldn't move. And uh, my daddy grabbed his arm. He said, I'm nonviolent, but if you hit my daughter, you're going to pull back a nub. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he had to fight with that, too, and, and stay true to those principles. And he trained us in those very well. My uncle did, too. My uncle, M.L., Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, was more prone to easily adapt to the principles of nonviolence. They both loved Jesus Christ. They just had different personalities, uh, but they were both, both very committed to nonviolence. And so was my grandfather, Martin Luther King Sr., and so am I today. You know, given that, that time and what your father and your uncle were living through day to day, and you also, you know, where do you think your father's strength came from, and how does activism shape who you are personally and what you stand for today? In all of my books, I write about the King family legacy. I am a guardian of that legacy today. I'm the oldest one in my generation. And so I remember when my daddy used to preach and my granddaddy and my uncle, they would say, my help is coming on. I feel my help. And I didn't really know what that was. I knew they would get strength and all of that. But the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they were honestly men of the gospel. Perfect? Absolutely not. In no way, but there are no perfect human beings anyway. But their strength honestly came from God, and they were not ashamed to say that. And my strength today comes from God as well. You've had your own fascinating personal journey in your career, personal life, and your faith. Would you please share with our listeners uh, how that empowered you? I was born in 1951. My grandfather had to talk to my mother and ask her not to have a DNC procedure and to abort me. It would have been an abortion. Abortion was illegal, but these procedures of exploratory things were not. He told my mother, that's a little girl. I saw her in a dream three years ago. She has bright skin and bright red hair, and she's going to bless many people. So I was born on January 22nd, 1951. We know that in 1968, my uncle Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We know that my dad mysteriously in 1969 was found in our home swimming pool with no water in his lungs and bruises all over his body. And so that was a tumultuous time. The feminist movement was rising at that time as well. I got married in 1969, right before my dad died, and I became a pro-choice feminist for several years. However, I had, to, and during that time, I, I married, had two abortions and a miscarriage and a divorce, unfortunately. In 1983, I had uh, been remarried. My grandfather had prevented me from getting an abortion in the mid-70s. I was going to abort that child. And my granddaddy says, no, that's an abortion. We don't do that. Martin Luther King, Sr. In 1983, I became a born-again Christian. At that time, I confessed all my sins that I knew of. And I still repent today because, you know, you sin sometimes and don't even know you did. And I went on from 83 to today. One of the questions I've said, I've asked, a woman has a right to choose what she does with her body. The baby's not her body. Where's the lawyer? For the baby, how can the dream survive if we murdered the children? I work for Priest for Life as the Executive Director of Civil Rights for the Unborn today. And I guess I'm a personality 
and maybe a force to be reckoned with on TV, radio, those kinds of things. However, I attribute all of my successes to the Lord. And I believe I'm alive today because God saw fit to use me. And so that's why I'm really available uh, to just serve in any way that I can. And um, it's just a joy. You just talked about being a pro-choice feminist or Democrat, you know, and becoming a, a pro-life Christian. And if I recall, you said your grandfather, Daddy King, was a Republican who became a Democrat, yet he remained anchored in his pro-life beliefs. You, know, you talked about him talking to you about what you can or cannot do. Is that what made you make that transformation? Were there other factors involved? That, that, that's a big swing in terms of personal beliefs. Well, obviously, being raised in a family with three Baptist preachers, and today I'm an ordained evangelist, that helped to shape and form uh, my worldview. And that showed me politics is a low frequency. The kingdom of God is a very high place, you know. So I believe that my grandfather's decision, he was a Republican, and he changed and voted for President John Kennedy in the uh, 60s, around 1960, when uh, Kennedy got my uncle out of jail. And so here I am. I became a Democrat first as a young adult, and I left the Democrat Party and became an independent and then a Frederick Douglass Republican. So what I learned from this part of the King family legacy is not party loyalty. It's expediency. And you align what you are doing with the work of the kingdom of God. And so just uh, at this time, I really changed from being a Democrat to an independent and then to a Republican. I'm a Frederick Douglass Republican today based on school choice, the opportunity to pray in the public square and have the Ten Commandments uh, available. And so I was disturbed that prayer had been taken out of schools in 63, 1963, 1973, killing babies in the womb became legal. All of that was disturbing to me, school choice. And so all of that, along with my spiritual transformation, have caused me to be a voice for life today. You just talked about school choice right here, and you've argued that school choice is a pressing civil rights issue. Could you please make that case for our audience? School choice is an important civil rights issue, I believe, in the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s, President Clinton was president, and school choice was an issue. Charter schools were beginning, and people were trying to get better educational opportunities for their children. And I think I might have been one of the first to say, well, President Clinton is on public assistance. He gets the checks from the taxpayers, and yet his daughter gets the finest education possible. Why shouldn't all children have that? And parents should have a right and a say in the education of their children. And so that is a civil rights question. And certainly the life of an unborn baby in the womb is a civil rights issue. Abortion is just a civil wrong. So how do you persuade people that school choice is in the best interest of children, especially when the public education system is so vocal and powerful? I believe that families across America are now understanding that school choice is fair. We've seen um, some changes in the last several years with that. So it's just a matter of prayer and education, communication. 
I've seen clips of you as a Fox News contributor, and you're called on to discuss some really, really hot-button issues with people who disagree with you. What advice do you have to disagree without being disagreeable? There is a process in the King family. It's nonviolent conflict reconciliation. And we practice that among ourselves because we don't agree on many things. And so it's very simply, it's very uh, straight to the point. Six steps. You gather your information. You educate your public in a, in a way that's not argumentative or fighting. You examine your own motives. Why do you believe what you believe and why do you want others to believe that? Then you sit and communicate without violence. If you cannot come to an agreement, you will peacefully demonstrate, and then you come back to the table. The main key is expecting to reconcile your differences with human beings, not different races or economic groups, uh, not the social justice and social gospel model where you leave God out of everything and humans fix it, but having a desire to really come together. And I do that in my family with others. And when I find that I'm becoming too opinionated and too determined to make somebody agree with me, then I know I'm self-serving and I'm not God-serving. Avita, we have just a few minutes left. How can people learn more about you and your ministry? AlvitaKing.com, CivilRightsForTheUnborn.org, new books, Why Trump? We're Not Colorblind. And it all started with an apple. Alveda King, thank you so very, very much for being with us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday, same time and same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, thank you, sports, entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.